Well, welcome back to our Q&A time. Uh, there was a question posted here that, ha- that was very personal, had a lot of personal family issues, finance issues and stuff. I'm not going to read that question. Uh, this, this, uh, these are pr- primarily Bible and situational questions. But I will just say to the person, and I'll say to everybody, um, there's a principle. When, when the man came to Jesus asking him to make a settlement between him and his brother about their estate settlement and make a decision, Jesus uh, did not engage in that. That's not, that's not the purpose. Um, I will tell, if you're in a f- personal family situation or uh, interpersonal situation, I'm not sure what you should do. The principle is you are responsible for the decisions you make in governance of yourself. You do what you understand under prayerful reflection and study is the duty God has given you to do in any circumstance, irrespective of what other people think of you. If you're making decisions and interpersonal decisions to try to get other people to think differently of you, you are not in harmony with how God would have you govern yourself. You're, you're being manipulated. Okay? So that is the principle. You are responsible in governance of you making the decisions that you believe are righteous and just for you to make in any given circumstance and leave other people free to think and say whatever they want about you. Amen. That is the principle. So I'm a week behind, so I was just watching the Sabbath school lesson for week 11. My question has to do with the deceitfulness of Joseph as uh, you called it purposeful misdirection. Well, it clearly was. <laughs> It clearly was. He instructed his people to tell him this is your, your, your master's divination cup when, it, when he didn't use it for divination. <laughs> okay. Um, you also gave other Bible examples, yes, about the prophet that uh, misled uh, Ahab about him going to war and, and letting a prisoner go. Uh, I didn't use the example of Nathan and going to David and talking about a little ewe lamb, which was clearly not a historical fact, but a story he made up to... to, to so a lot, a lot of examples like this. Or the old prophet and the young prophet, and the old prophet lied to him. It says right in Scripture. I gave lots of examples of this. Okay, keep on with the question. I've been trying to live by your principles that we can't help God's cause by using Satan's methods. At first glance, I would definitely... Put deception, manipulation, misleading information in Satan's method. Can you help me grasp again what you were trying to say and how it fits into this principle? This is, I'm so glad you did ask, and I tried to clarify at the beginning of the lesson last week, but I, I think it, it's so subtle that it deserves a reemphasis on the, on the issue. And if you have a rules-oriented approach to life, rules say, you know, I don't lie. Therefore... Nathan couldn't go to David and tell about a story in which, because that would be factually untrue. It's a lie. The prophet couldn't confront Ahab with his acted-out metaphor and say, I was uh, told to watch this prisoner, I let him go. He didn't do that. that. That was a lie. If your focus is on simply fact rec- um, um, declarations, then you get locked into positions. But... If your principle is to bring the truth to light, not to deceive, not to cover truth, but to bring truth out into the open for action and restoration, then you understand that Nathan's story to David was not covering truth. It exposed sin and brought truth to light. Same thing with the prophet that, that confronted Ahab. It was not creating a false scenario to cover reality and cover over sin, it was creating a scenario because, remember, the human mind is deceitful above all things, utterly wicked, and Ahab's sin was causing him to deny and distort, and he was making up, and it was designed to bring into the open the sin that was hiding in Ahab and King David's lives. This is the point. 
Same thing with Joseph and the divination cup. It was designed to bring into the open the reality of his brother's heart's conditions. He couldn't read their heart. It was not designed to, to cause evil, to cause harm, to inflict harm, to cover selfishness. It was designed to, in several cases, bring the sin in the heart, David's heart, Ahab's heart, into the open for its correction and resolution. That is a higher principle. And so these stories were um, means whereby truth could advance, not whereby truth would be obstructed. But it takes a certain level of maturity and trust in the Lord and discernment and understanding reality to be able to do this effectively, and it's not for everyone. You see the same thing. Um, see, the, the legalist, did anybody remember Corey Ten Boone in The Hiding Place? Okay, it was very immature. Strength, she's sick with the Lord, but the whole idea of not lying was presented in a very immature light. You remember the quote I read last week? Any, anything intended to deceive, the look in the eye, the, the nonverbal thing, the movement of a hand, anything that's designed to intend to deceive, uh, in the context there was in regard to your brother's character and reputation, because the commandment is, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Okay, that is what it's about. Uh, anything, though, that's subtly designed to deceive would be, uh, along those lines, a break of the commandment, not just the words. In Corey Ten Boone's book, they describe how they were hiding Jews in a thing underneath their table, in a trap door, some little basement thing underneath, you know what I'm talking about? And how the Nazis came in and asked, you have any Jews in here? And she said, yes, because she can't lie. Where are they? Under the table. And they look under the table, under the tablecloth, and then they laugh. <laughs> and the Nazis got offended, thought they were making fun of them, and stomped out. And we didn't lie. Clearly, you did. You did not say, yes, we've got three, and they're in a trap door under our floor, and we're hiding them from you, and they're down underneath this table under the floor. You withheld evidence, and you laughed in a way to make it appear that you were making fun when you weren't. It was designed to deceive. But we can feel good with our conscience because we didn't lie. I didn't say no. I said yes. You see how that works? These are the games people play. I also gave the example which is a real example about me having confidentiality responsibilities to people who come see me. And how, and it happens actually quite regularly where I get asked, do you know so-and-so? And I only know them as my patient. What's my ethical, moral, and legal responsibility? Well, I can't answer your questions because the ethics of my profession uh, uh, require that I, I, I remain silent in answering that question. The answer is simply no. If that's the only place I know them. Now, if I know them several places, maybe I went to school with them and they came... Uh, and, and, well, yeah, I, I went to school back at Southern back in the 80s with that person. What's going on with them? I could do that. But if the only place I know them is my office, I can't disclose that. It would harm. It would cause harm. And that's the principle. When you love your neighbor, you don't say things that harm them. So that's the point. I hope that helps clarify. Those stories were all told to bring truth to light, not to obstruct truth. They were designed to help get sin out of people's heart, not cover sin. They were designed to heal, not injure. And that's what all those stories were designed to do. And then... Um, are people who don't have good parents or don't have parents that teach them manners or kindness and grow into their 40s and beyond excused 
for their unkind, rude behavior, since it was never modeled to them otherwise. Or just as we are born into sin, we are naturally born with convictions that relay to us if we are mistreating others. What do you all think? Well, the answer is very clear. Your childhood experiences do not determine your eternal destiny. Yeah, your childhood experiences. I have patients who went through terrible traumatic childhood, and they've become very good, moral, and righteous people through God's grace. And I've had people who are raised and know people who are raised in really nurturing and supportive Christian homes who've gone into wild living and destructive living. Childhood does not determine destiny. Childhood impacts and provides you either with strengths, opportunities, and resources, or obstacles and wounds that need to be overcome and healed. Either way, or both. You get resources, you get wounds. But at, when you enter adulthood, every person is responsible for the decisions they make in governance of themselves. Do they, regardless of your child, do you go down paths designed to heal, mature, and grow in God's grace? Do you go down paths of, of selfishness and bitterness against other people? Those are your choices, irrespective of your childhood. Are they not? Yeah, so no, childhood does not lock people in to certain paths. Hi, Tim. Uh, let's see. From a long-time Christian, when we uh, talk about God's plan for our lives, how do we know what our part is and what his part is? I do what my hand finds to do, but life is really hard. Have I missed his plan, maybe? Is there a way back to his plan? I am great. I'm a grateful person and wish to be his love on earth, but my job pays low and I'm in pain doing my job. Have I possibly missed his plan for my life? How do we know? There are, in my view, there are, are two ways to answer the question about God's plan. There is the universal plan, and there is the specific individual plan. There's a universal plan he asks for everyone's life. And what is that universal plan? Restoration. Restoration to righteousness. For every single human being, what we read in class about the valley of the shadow of death and leading us the path of righteousness for the restoration of our soul, that is the plan for every single human being. So first order question is, am I walking the path with Jesus for the restoration of my soul? If you're not walking that path first, you cannot walk the second path, the second plan. First plan is an individual plan for every single human being for the eradication of the, of the carnal nature as the controlling and governing factor in your life, to die to self and be reborn, that you're living God's principles wherever you are, that you're on the path of the restoration of righteousness and you become someone through who, whom his name is magnified by how you live. That's what I heard you say you want to do. You want to be his love on the earth. That's first order. If you're on that path... Then the second order is, does God have a specific calling for me? Does he have a specific mission for me? And big or small, I would tell you he has a purpose for each one of us. If we trust him, he'll lead us where we can do a work for him. There's no question. I've never seen that fail for somebody who sincerely wants to be useful in God's cause. He will put them to work somewhere. That work may be in a local faith community of some kind. It may be in a mission field. 
It may be in your place. It may be, for some people, historically in prison. Think about how many good Christian people through history have been arrested and put in prison for their faith. I can't tell you where that path will take you in your individual life, but he will place you where you will be useful in a calling for him. Not all of us, praise the Lord, were called to a path where we got swallowed by a fish. Aren't you thankful for it? You weren't, you weren't called for that. Okay? So the specific purpose, I would tell you, is to be prayerfully sought out individually as long as you're under the universal purpose and living that universal purpose. Yes? I'd just like to comment personally. I think when you're in a place where things are very, very painful, there's something the Lord is trying to teach you about your character at that time. And I would just offer to this person to think about you know, what is it that God wants to teach me in this painful time? So I want to thank you for that because I think that is an important perspective to consider. It's not always true. But I think of Job. Job was righteous and perfect in all his ways, and he suffered terribly. And in that case, the Lord was really probably not trying to teach him a lot. Teach us later. Uh, he was, so, so this, so this is another point. This is why you're, you're exactly right. And next week's class next week is all about being in the crucible for the maturing of our characters and the suffering and the trials and tribulations we go through. That'll be next week's class. And so there's no question that there's an aspect of our human experience where that can be true and is true, but it's not the total sum. And sometimes we find ourselves struggling, not because God's trying to teach us something. In other words, doing something specifically to bring to us, to teach us. Sometimes the suffering is still lesson, being taught lessons. Paul, it's, it's painful to kick against the thorns. Paul, have you noticed that? But, but who was kicking against the thorns? Paul. God wasn't beating him with thorns. Okay, Paul was making choices against God's design. And when you go against God's design, there are painful consequences. So, but it's a, that's a teaching moment. But sometimes we're under attack by the enemy, like in Job's case. So it takes a little bit of reflection. And I would tell you, do that prayerfully. If you're struggling in your life, make sure you're on the first universal plan and purpose. And then if you are, ask the Lord. And if you're not happy with the place he's got you, the Lord is gracious. He often will use you in a different place. And he never forces you to take a certain path. I can think of in the Advent history, there were two people that he moved upon with a prophetic gift that resisted it. Uh, I'm not going to suggest that those people were eternally lost, but they certainly lost that, that mission and opportunity. That makes sense. And Paul in the New Testament. We have no idea where Paul's mission might have gone had he listened. If you go and read in Acts, he was warned multiple times not to go back to Jerusalem by the Lord. The Lord sent a message, don't go, you're going to die if you go. But Paul was so passionate for a, a, not a selfish reason, and this is why it wasn't really sin, because he was doing it out of love. He wanted to reach his people but it was but god knew what was going to happen there didn't want i don't think god wanted him to go there at this time because we have the message but he went anyway yes and, and we'll close with this comment there's a contrarian way to look at some of these things too because uh, if it sounds might sound a little bit profane to say this but from an intellectual perspective there's a saying that one of the caesars had illegitimate non corruptum interpreted meaning don't let the bastards get you down so if there's somebody who is really just on your last nerve, you've got to let it go sometimes and look above it. Okay. So there's a question that just came in. Contrast original sin 
with our terminal sin condition inherited from Adam. The term original sin, as I understand it, it generally is used, and what it means is original guilt. In other words, we're born because of Adam's sin, the whole human race is now condemned under a legal guilt death sentence, and we're born in a guilty state under condemnation by God for eternal damnation unless something happens that uh, changes that legal status like the church uh, administering some sacrament of baptism for an infant to change their legal destiny to a salvation destiny or something like that. That's what uh, my understanding of the original sin terminology is really referring to. Um, our, our understanding, as we've described, is that, that um, and the Bible is very clear, every human being was in Adam. We're all descended from Adam. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalm 51.5. So we're born with a condition we didn't choose, but that, and that condition without remedy is terminal. Um, and so we are not held responsible or guilty for inheriting the condition. What we're held responsible for is refusing the remedy. And that's the big difference. So we are born with a condition that without remedy, but the remedy is offered free and we can partake the remedy, which changes the condition. And we go from, uh, from a, uh, dead in sin condition to a reborn in Christ condition. And we have, uh, moved from death to life as the Bible teaches. So if we reject the remedy though, those who don't have Christ, the Bible says, they don't have life. Why? Because we're already dead in trespass and sin. We have a terminal condition. And so that's, that's how I would describe that differently. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, for your truth, for your love, for all that you've achieved in Jesus. Now pour your spirit upon us, enlighten our minds, settle these truths, seal us to your kingdom, that we can be effective witnesses for you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.